0: This is a special 10 part series on how I write academic papers. These are my tools and tips on writing. Please bear in mind that these are things that really work well for me and for my research and my specific research area. It may not work for you or you might just need a different, to use a different approach or some different tools. Really do what makes sense for you and your work and follow your motivation. That can be a really uh, a guiding light. Writing skills evolve over time. So even though these tools may not work for you right now, you'll want to continue to come back to this and to other tools periodically and update your skills. Happy writing. Part one covers how academic writing works let's say you're going to write a report or maybe a thesis for your bachelor's degree, your master's degree, or even a PhD, or maybe you're writing an academic article, or you just want to learn how to write better. Um, I want to talk to you about how you can write using sort of academic English. And I'm going to focus here on uh, English as the language of choice, uh, because certainly it's one of the most popular academic uh, languages to write in. Um, But that comes with a pretty big disclaimer that writing traditions vary based on culture and the language of use and so in certain languages it's maybe different than what I'm going to describe here. Uh, But the basic premise for writing academic English is uh, to be understood. It's about communicating. I think a lot of people approach academic uh, writing and they start thinking about like the biggest, most complicated terminology that they can use uh, because they want to sound authoritative. They want to sound like they know what they're talking about. And that's I guess part of it is the language we're using but fundamentally if the language you use gets in the way of someone understanding what you're saying then you're not you're not so smart that you've figured out a way of confusing somebody, but you haven't figured out how to communicate effectively really complicated ideas to an audience who may or may not be experts in that field. So I think uh, being able to communicate very clearly is important. And that means you're going to have to maybe take a step back from your own ego and think more about your audience, who you're trying to reach, than thinking about how you can make your own writing sound very uh, authoritative and very uh, uh, as if you're thinking big thoughts grand thoughts um. Yes. Yeah, so the number one thing to start off with is word choice. So when you're coming, when you start uh, selecting the, the, the vocabulary that you want to use to describe a certain phenomenon or a certain issue or a certain thing that you want to write about, um, you have a lot of choices in English. English is one of those languages that has like a thousand synonyms for every word. So I want you to think about which words you're choosing uh, to explain what you're going to s- explain to an audience and be sure that you're choosing words that are gonna be easily understood by that audience. This does not mean that you're simplifying what you're saying. What it means is you're explaining what you're thinking in a clearer and more uh, effective way. And so uh, if you've already written something, I would challenge you to go back through that writing and try to pick out terminology that you're using that you may be able to explain in more detail uh, using uh, words that are more easily understood by your audience. Now. This comes with a huge caveat that in most areas of science, there are terms of art that we use. And those terms um, are loaded with a lot of mm, kind of uh, detail, a lot of complexity many times. And so when we're explaining a term of art, it's absolutely necessary to give the reader a clear definition of what you mean by that term. So in my area, one of the things I talk a lot about is this idea of implementation. Now, we always have in our head what kind of implementation refers to. We always kind of think, oh, that's more or less what it is. But I would never let my reader, I never assume that my reader knows what I mean when I talk about implementation. And so it's necessary for me to define it. Implementation refers to putting an idea into practice, for example. Um, And then if I'm drawing that definition from a specific area of the literature from uh, other researchers, uh, then I need to make sure that I'm referring to those researchers and maybe even providing the exact definition that they've uh, used in their uh, research, and their writing. So that's a little bit about choosing your terminology, and I think that's really important as you're going through your writing to really question yourself how, uh, what, in what ways are you choosing and selecting the words that you use to describe whatever it is that you're describing. Um, so really be critical uh, about your own word choices. And if you think you're using a word that's not a term of art, that you're kind of like, oh, no, this is just the way I've, been, I've thought about it, that's fine. But you might want to dig into uh, the research because chances are if it's a really specific... uh, term, then uh, people have been researching it probably for hundreds of years, and they've come up with a thousand different ways of conceptualizing and defining that term. And if you're going to write something scientific, you need to make sure that you're referring to those authors, to that research tradition, so that you can, uh, so the reader better understands how you understand this um, area of science that that you're dealing with. Now, the second really important uh, thing here, a little bit more practical than just a choice of words, is conciseness. Now, conciseness, again, doesn't necessarily mean short. It means to the point. It means that you don't spend a lot of Time using uh, flowery language or using a lot of uh, complex sentence structures it means that you're very direct in your approach to uh, explaining what it is you're explaining to your reader so it's really important that we're being concise all right so what concise translates to in my world is using short sentences uh, sentences that get right to the point but that maybe build off of one another in a very coherent way so being able to to state something, state something that provides a little bit more uh, detail or clarity to what you're saying, and then st- restate it or state something else that provides some additional clarity. Um, it's really about being clear in your writing. So conciseness, sh- uh, short sentences, not using complex sentence structures, Maybe two lines, three lines long, and if you want to learn bad practices in writing, read some of my publications because I've oh, I've I've learned this by making a thousand mistakes, um, and I'm not perfect writer. I'm not even a great writer, I wouldn't say, but I am a writer and i am pretty well published. So I think you can learn by looking at bad examples too. And I think you can check out some of my publications in Google Scholar uh, or just throw my name into Google and you'll find some of my uh, writing. Uh, the point I'm trying to make here is a two sent- uh, one sentence can go on two or three maybe uh, lines, a single paragraph, uh, maybe a half page at most, kind of three, maybe to five sentences. I really, Am in favor of kind of short and clear paragraphs that capture a single idea. Uh, a sentence should capture a single idea in that sentence. And so, if you find yourself trying to pack a lot of information into a sentence, break it out into two or three sentences. This is something that a lot of uh, uh, writers that are new to academic English struggle with: is just the basic, uh, the fundamentals, which are you know not putting a thousand ideas into one sentence or a thousand ideas into one paragraph. Really try to isolate. What am I? Trying Trying to say in this sentence what am i trying to say in this paragraph and focus only on that uh, and if there's additional knowledge or information that you need to communicate break it into another sentence break it into another paragraph and then sections so you're going to have some headings and different ways of organizing your writing Um, for the lowest level sections I always try to shoot for three to four paragraphs Um, I really find it um, uh, problematic if a writer is only providing one paragraph under a heading Uh, I think if that happens it's a lot of the time it's because that one paragraph might belong to a different section so you might need to be you might need to combine sections Uh, if a paragraph if a a section heading only has one paragraph chances are it only deserves one paragraph or it might deserve two or three paragraphs so you might want to expand on whatever that topic is Uh, so for sections rule of thumb three to four paragraphs I would say two fine you know if I was gonna review your paper I wouldn't you know kind of what is it? Uh, split hairs? Uh, but I would probably give you a recommendation. Think about whether or not this belongs somewhere else or it can be expanded on further. <sighs> In terms of sentence structure, I always try to use the active voice. Now, uh, passive voice is is something a lot of uh, early writers do because they think it sounds a little bit more academic because it removes the subject from the sentence. Um, So if I was gonna say something like, um, the paper was read by anthony or the paper was reviewed by anthony right it takes a subject which should be me i'm the actor i'm the one doing something and puts it at the end of the sentence so it puts the paper as kind of the actor which the paper can't really do anything but uh if you were going to rephrase this actively it would be anthony read the paper or anthony reviewed the paper so i think uh making sure that you're writing is an active voice as as much as makes sense sometimes the passive voice just makes more sense but a lot of times i find that especially early writers or or writers who are new to the field uh, will use the passive voice because they think it takes out that subject and it provides some like sense of objectivity you don't want that in academic writing always put a subject at the beginning of a sentence you should have subject you should have a verb and you should have an object typically so something does something to something now There's this debate about whether or not we should be using first person pronouns. So I or we or anything like that in your academic writing. Um, I'm a little bit lenient on this sometimes. So I kind of have like a 90 10 rule. 90% of the time, I think you should be using, uh, you shouldn't be using uh, first person pronouns. 10% of the time, it's probably okay to use a first person pronoun. Most of the time, I would use a first person pronoun in like the methods section. And I'll talk more about methods in another video. Ninety percent of the time, it's uh, I find it's um, more stronger uh, academic English to use uh, to not use first person pronouns. Uh, so what can you do instead? Well, if you're talking about a paper or if you're talking about your thesis proposal or you're just talking about the, your thesis, you can write this thesis argues or this uh, thesis shows or the, the results show or um, something along those lines so that you're putting a, an actor, you kind of making the thesis the actor, which, you know, there's some debate about whether or not that's appropriate or not, but that's typically the approach that I've taken and I think it works pretty well if you're talking about a specific author who has sh- uh, argued something or a piece of research that has shown something. I often say something like research shows and then make a statement about what research might show or uh, off this author. So Geonumus 2020 shows blah, 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 and kind of go into some detail about what the research was about. What are the kind of key issue that you want to draw out or show your reader as part of that uh, part of your literature review or whatever it is? Uh, So those are a few tips. Uh, So number one, uh, make sure that you are being very clear in your uh, language. So your word choice matters. Make sure you opt for words that are clearer rather than words that are more opaque or words that are more concrete rather than words that are more abstract or words that uh, are more often used than more obscure words so using plain language using clear language is really important second one make sure you're being concise don't this is not your time to kind of wax philosophically or maybe it is if you're doing a philosophy thesis why not but like what I, what I want you to think about is making your sentence structure very uh, clear and to the point making your paragraph structure very clear and to the point uh, to one point one set one point for a sentence one point for a paragraph you don't need to make multiple points Um, and then making sure your sections are kind of uh, are uh, worthy of being a section make sure you're dealing with one issue in that section and make sure that there's enough uh, content there to make it worth having a section and then last third point here Subject, verb, object, something, does something, to something, make sure that you have that structure in all your sentences and you will be a great uh, and wonderful and likely well-published academic writer. Now we're going to get into part two, how to structure an academic paper. Now, if you're writing uh, an academic paper in English, uh, structuring that work can be a huge challenge because it really requires us to take a step back from what we're writing about and try to understand higher level structures, a little bit more abstract way of uh, framing or organizing the work that you're, you're doing here. And so what I wanna try to give you is a few tips about how you can do that really, really effectively. Uh, And when I think about a thesis or almost any academic writing, I really think of it in three parts. I think about why is that piece of work relevant? I think about how I have kind of conducted that research. And then I think what, what have I specifically done? So why, how, what? I think this gives us a good overarching structure. High, high, high level. Now that you can break down further. And when I talk about writing for academic English, I'm really thinking about social science, but you could also translate this to other disciplines. Computer science uses this uh, structure a lot. Um, health sciences uses a lot. Uh, education sciences, you know, there's a lot of different fields that use this basic structure. Um, so maybe take it for with a little bit of grain of salt here. Your disciplinary um, field might differ a little bit. I know law and legal studies, the the writing structure is a lot different than social science. Um, I know that, um, I don't know, maybe uh, you you come from an anthropological background, might be a little bit different. I'm pretty sure that the uh, science, like physics and chemistry and things like that, more or less follow this this, uh, structure as well. Um, So anything that uses empirical research, I think would more or less follow the structure, which is uh, introduction, literature review, methodology, uh, results and analysis, discussion and conclusion. Now their little middle part here, the results and analysis and discussion is a little bit flexible. You might break the results out and then the analysis in a separate section and then the discussion in a separate section. You might uh, combine uh, analysis and discussion and then have that as its own section or you might combine discussion and conclusion and have it as its own section. Regardless, introduction, literature review, methodology, results and analysis, that's the way I typically do it. Discussion, conclusion, that should be your more your, your structure, if you can think of it on that level. So, uh, highest level, why, how, what, uh, kind of secondary level, uh, as I just described. So, your why sets up uh, more or less your introduction and your literature review. What a why does is it justifies why your research is relevant. So, if you can't do that by the time you're done with your introduction and your literature review, for me, me, if I'm reviewing your paper, you've already failed because you've already lost my interest. You've already lost the the relevance of why uh, I care about this work. Um, And it's really important that you're able to do that as a scientist because justifying why your research is important uh, is critical to whether or not you'll get grant funding, whether or not you get your publication uh, published. Um, It's not good enough to just say it's important because I think it's important or because I'm a genius and I have really big thoughts. You've got to show to your readers, the people who are are supposed to build off of your work, why your research is important, why it's irrelevant. So let's start off with the why, why, literature review and introduction. How, how have you conducted your research? Well, that's more or less just the methodology. Maybe the analysis is a little bit part of the how, it's the procedure, but methodology kind of covers it. Uh, And then what, what did you come up with? Well, I think what is more or less covered by those last few sections. So results, analysis, discussion, and conclusion, that's your what, that's the meat, that's the uh, kind of the main aspect of your research, that's the empirics behind your research. So I, I think of structure and organization of a thesis or a piece of academic writing in those terms, introduction, literature review, methods, uh, results and analysis, discussion, and conclusion. Now I'm gonna go through each of those sections separately in a separate video, so check them out if that's something you wanna kinda of do a deeper dive on. Right now we're just focusing on structure and organization. Now, when it comes to organizing the sections, so you're organizing, say, your literature review, um, I always try to make sure that the ideas start from broad, from like the most abstract level, and go to the most concrete level. Now, the literature review is a great way, a great kind of example or case study of how we can uh, structure our writing, because the literature review should more or less feed the reader. It should channel the reader right into to the methodology, which should be directly related to your topic of interest. So if what your literature review does is take me from idea A to B to C to D that are kind of linked, but don't have a clear flow that are is driving the reader into the methodology, then all it's going to read, uh, all the, the reviewers going to do when they read it is just kind of get bounced around from idea to idea. It's fine, I suppose, but I think it's mediocre writing. So think about each section in your literature review, each kind of topic that you want to deal with, and and, and structure it in a way that you deal with the most abstract, the highest level ideas uh, at the beginning of the literature review, which in some ways kind of sets up the justification for your thesis, because you're going to talk about the science behind each of these topics. And then you kind of step them down into more and more narrow uh, ideas and narrow pieces of work. Now, what you may find in doing that is that the first section of your literature review is r- really theoretical. It may deal with a lot of models and theories around the topic, your topic of interest. And then as you step down gradually, you're going, you may find that there's less and less research that's available that's been conducted on this topic until you get to the point of your thesis or your piece of academic writing, which is supposed to be making a new contribution to this field. That's because, so the, the, the new contribution is a really important part because... If you're uh, just kind of restating what somebody else has already said, that's not a new contribution. So uh, as you get to a, uh, your work, your contribution to the field, uh, the, the the topics that deal specifically with that should become, uh, the, the research behind that should be less and less and less. So you'll probably find that on the highest level, there's a lot more citations. And then as you get to the lowest level, your last section or even your last uh, couple of paragraphs in your literature review may only have one or two citations. That's fine. That's what you want because you're leading the reader. You're kind of drawing them into this is why my research is so relevant and important. Why what I've done uh, matters. Now, uh, each section, uh, I think of a section. So if we're t- let's go back to the literature review. Uh, I think of that uh, section uh, more or less as having Two to three headings underneath it. And then may t- maybe each of those headings, depending on the length of your overall uh, kind of manuscript, the length of your overall document, each of those headings might have two to three subheadings. But the rule of thumb here is two to three. Uh, when I find that uh, each heading has like seven subheadings, I think, well, maybe the writer didn't organize themselves well enough. Maybe there are some subheadings that they could have included or combined or somehow organize it a little bit better Uh, i think the two to three rule kind of gives the reader a really good clear understanding of what to expect and how you it forces you as the writer to organize yourself a little bit better so two to three subheadings and then if you have under each subheading if you are under each heading if you have a, a subheading then two to three subheadings and then for each subheading or each heading uh, anywhere you're writing actual text uh, as i mentioned in in the video on how to write uh, you really want three or four paragraphs max now you can go as low as two i would be fine with two you can go as high as maybe five. But if I start seeing seven paragraphs under a heading, then I'm like, well, there's probably a lot more here that you could have, a lot better ways of organizing this uh, that you could have done than just giving me a whole lot of information. Um, And if you do less than two, if you do one paragraph, then I think, well, okay, you, you might, this might be something you could have talked about further, you could have been more clear about, or it's something that could be combined into a different section two to three headings, two to three subheadings. And if you go sub sub subheadings, find two to three of them, uh, three to four paragraphs in each uh, heading. Uh, I think that's where your your real uh, substance of your work can be, uh, how you can organize the substance of your writing. Now, last thing I want to deal with here about organization is uh, constructing a narrative throughout your thesis. And this is a really challenging piece of uh, of writing. I had a hard time with this when I first started academic writing, Uh, creating a a clear narrative throughout the whole of a document, throughout the whole of a piece of work was just a huge challenge because I wanted to talk about so many different things because there were so many awesome things that were related to my work. Um, When you're constructing your narrative, it's really important that you get comfortable leaving things on the shelf, leaving things on the cutting room floor, as it were, um, and not including every possible thing into your thesis. So you might end up with a literature review where you want to cover 10 topics. Well, that's probably not relevant. There's probably a few of them that aren't relevant. I would say over half that probably aren't relevant. So uh, really think critically about what it is that is the most important aspects of your work and focus only on those things. If it doesn't fall into that that most important aspect, um, then it doesn't belong in your thesis. It belongs in a different thesis or belongs in another piece of work that you can write. Um, So when you're setting up the introduction you're talking about things like your aims and your objectives of your work, you might want to just write that down and keep it next to your computer because that is what go- your guide, that's your guide throughout your whole thesis. That's your guide for how you're structuring your thesis. So any of the headings or subheadings that you, you're you trying to write, look at your aim of your thesis or maybe look at your research question and say, does this heading belong with this? Not does it relate? Because there's a million topics that relate to a different, uh, to a single idea, but does it belong? Is it directly connected to this piece of work? Uh, And even if it's directly connected, is the connection as strong as these other ideas that I want to deal with? Um, So really be critical about what belongs and doesn't belong in your thesis and be very, very comfortable tossing things out. Uh, If uh, I I just use like uh, my gut instinct, right? So if I'm kind of structuring things and I'm looking at all the different topics I want to cover, if it just hits me as like, "Mm, this might not be so related, get rid of it. You can always add it back, but try and really challenge yourself to just focus on a few things rather than a lot of things. Focus on the things that are most directly related or maybe even set up a kind of criteria where you're looking at, say, all the topics you want to cover in your literature review or even all of the results that you found and say, okay, here's my objective of my uh, paper this topic, this topic, this topic, rank them most applicable to least applicable and do the same thing maybe in your results or whatever else you're working on. I think that can really help you structure your writing. It can help you craft that narrative, that red thread, uh, and help you focus on what it is that matters. Now you might find that, oh, all 30 of these topics deal with my aim or my objective. Fine. Or maybe all 30 of those are equally weighted. They all equally deal. Maybe your objective is too broad focus your objective and then you'll find that you'll be able to create a clearer narrative so number one On the highest level, make sure that you can justify why your research is relevant, how you've conducted it, and what you have found. Structure your document into these parts, introduction, literature review, methods, results, analysis, discussion, in some shape or form, and your conclusion. Make sure you're organizing your sections into two to three headings, or two to three subheadings, and your section, your headings and subheadings into three to four paragraphs. And then make sure that you have a very clear narrative that. relates to your, th- your topic, relates to your aim that's throughout the whole thesis and don't be afraid of getting rid of stuff that doesn't belong. Now in part three, we're gonna cover how to write a really compelling introduction. One of the most difficult sections of an academic publication or a manuscript to write is the introduction. It's really challenging because you often have to have a very high-level overview of what you're doing, uh, as well as a very clear and concrete understanding of what you have done or what you intend to do if you're writing a proposal, for example. I'll get into proposals in a separate video, but right now I'm just focusing on, if you've done research, if you're writing a thesis, or you're writing an academic publication, how to set up that introduction, section, how to really get the reader focused and attentive on the work that you're doing and justify why you've done it, explain how you've kind of conducted it, and what specifically have you done. So I think about the first part of that introduction uh, as being uh, the most critical to getting your reader's attention and to establishing some commonalities with your reader. And that's a, a a pretty important part of it is because When you're, uh, when you're reading a manuscript, when you're reading a piece of work, uh, that first paragraph, really, is uh, what a reader will use to decide whether or not the rest of it's worth reading at all. If they read that first paragraph and they're like, not relevant to my field, boom, they're not going to read it. They're not going to cite it. They're not going to care about it. So if you're really writing to get your research uh, understood, you're really writing to try to get your research out there so people can build off of it, you need to get your reader's attention, not by being kind of flashy or flourishing, but really focused on on. Uh, why your research is relevant. So that gives that common ground. So the reader's going, oh, yes, this research is relevant. I see why this research is relevant, because the writer has told me this is relevant because of this reason or that reason. Now, I think about relevance in a couple of different ways. Uh, First, probably the most common for an academic uh, publication is to uh, explain why Your research, the work that you've done here, is relevant from a scientific perspective. So in order to do that, you need to show that there's a scientific tradition that you're drawing upon. Now, where you start in that scientific tradition is really subjective in terms of where you feel is most appropriate. What I would caution you against is starting so abstract or so broad that the reader's kind of sitting there going, yeah, duh. Of course, we know that. So if you're talking about, uh, you know, sociology or social science, you don't want to go all the way back to the ancient Greeks unless you're going to really draw on something the ancient Greeks have said, um, unless you're really going to focus in on that. Start at a point that is kind of one level or two levels removed from your specific topic. Start at a point that you think your reader will have some common ground, that they understand, oh, yes, I'm familiar with this literature, I'm familiar with this research, so then I can go in and really start to understand your article. Um, if you're doing research in uh, physics or in other areas, you just have to make that decision. Where would the common ground be? So setting up a real clear scientific justification, this is what we know about this field, can be really valuable to getting your reader to understand why your research is important. Uh, You can also set up that first paragraph, the why this research is relevant, from a societal perspective or from a technological perspective. So you could say something about a new trend in technology. You could say, something about a new phenomena that has been observed in society there should be could be a new phenomena in terms of a new law that has been implemented uh, or something along those lines really trying to grab the reader's attention by helping them understand that hey here's this new thing that's happened uh, that's uh, my research deals with this this really helps draw the reader in you may want to do both you may want to start with a, a social phenomena that has uh, occurred that you want to use as a basis maybe it's a war you want to say hey this war uh, you know was this happened uh, and that you're going to base your research on on that, uh, that event uh, or it could be uh, again for example a uh, a new law or something like that and then you want might want to add to that so maybe a separate paragraph or within that same paragraph the connection between that phenomena and a broader field of study, a broader field of research that your specific area of research deals with. Again, kind of maybe one, to. Uh, or, or maximum, I guess, three steps removed. When I think of those steps removed, I really just think about what's my core topic, what's my thesis, what's my aim of my thesis, and then moving back from that, okay, what's one higher level, one more abstract level uh, away from uh, my thesis, maybe one theory that my thesis deals with, one model, one topic of investigation that my thesis deals with, that would be a little bit more broad, a little bit broader than my specific topic. All right. Your thesis or your piece of academic writing. That first paragraph uh, needs to set up why your uh, research is relevant. It can do it in one of two ways, either scientifically. So here's a body of research that's been conducted. Mine is going to build off of that. Or uh, kind of phenomenologically, here's something that has occurred that I want to uh, kind of probe and investigate from an empirical scientific perspective. Um, I would set that that first section up like really as one or two paragraphs, uh, one, one paragraph is often enough and especially if you're writing a shorter manuscript if it's like 10 pages or i don't know four or five thousand words you need really tight uh, uh language and you really need really tight paragraph structures uh so one or two paragraphs then then i need you i want you i want you yes please all of you uh no i would recommend that you set up what is the gap So you're already talked about what we know or what we see, what we have observed. And now the second paragraph, or maybe it's your third paragraph, um, you want to set up, what don't we know? So from a scientific perspective, there's something that we don't know that your thesis is going to provide some new knowledge about, some new information about. And so... Explain that to me. Tell me specifically what we don't know. Now that should re- relate directly to why you are doing your research. So you may not, we may not know, there may be no research or very little research about a specific phenomena that has existed or occurred or whatever. Your research is going to Fill that gap somehow. So you want to set up the gap. What is the gap? Maybe there's been a lot of research on a topic, but then there's nothing. We don't know anything about this subtopic or the sub sub issue. Well, your research is going to fill that gap. So be explicit. Make sure the reader understands what specific gap are you planning on filling in your thesis or dissertation or manuscript. So why is it relevant from a societal or or scientific perspective? What don't we know? What is the gap in the research? And then your aim is to fill that gap. So that's the next step. That may be in the same paragraph when you talk about the gap. It may be in a separate paragraph. So your aim should be to fill that gap. And it should fill that gap in what way? Well, by investigating a specific phenomenon by uh, researching, by examining a specific phenomena or a specific uh, topic. Uh, so uh, you, you're going to set up, this is the gap, this is what we don't know. I'm going to fill that gap, this research, this thesis fills this gap uh, by doing something, examining, investigating, researching. And those are the terms that I often use when I'm setting up my aim. So aim to investigate, aim to research, aim to examine. You set up your gap, you set up your aim, you're going to fill that gap by doing something. Uh, So you can say this thesis or this uh, uh, paper uh, aims to fill this gap by examining something, by investigating something. And then I go into my research question or my hypotheses. Now, if you're writing a shorter piece of, a, a shorter academic work, you really only want one research question. Uh, I would be very hesitant to put more than one research question uh, if I was writing a paper, even upwards of 10,000 words. Now, if it's a thesis or if it's a longer piece of work, you might want to have two or three research questions if you're doing more socio, socio, social research. Uh, social science research. Or you might want to have a research question with a couple of sub questions. Uh, if you're doing quantitative research and you want to do some hypothesis testing, uh, then you might you set up your hypothesis at this time. So you've set up, here's my gap, here's what we don't know. I'm going to fill this gap by examining a specific thing. Um, you're going to fill this gap, you're going to do this by uh, questioning by asking a question that you're then going to answer. Now you answer that question using your data or your methodology or both. You can just say I'm using qualitative research methods in order to blah blah blah, or I'm using a, a, a survey of this many people to blah 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 blah. Um, so you got your gap, you got your aim, which is to fill that gap, and you got your research question or hypothesis, and then you got your methods or data that you're going to use to test those hypotheses or answer those research questions now that little chunk gap aim uh research question and or hypotheses uh and um methods and data That can all be packed up in one paragraph if you're writing a shorter piece of work, or it can be broken out into multiple paragraphs. It's really up to you. Your introduction section can be a little bit longer than is typical. So you might have five or six or seven paragraphs in your introduction, depending on the Uh, depending on the the length of the overall work, you may even divide your uh, introduction up into subsections. I typically like just one long narrative in the introduction because that's what I will, if I read nothing else, I will read the introduction. I might read the introduction and the conclusion, or I might read the introduction, the results, the analysis, and the conclusion. But typically, if I'm going to read the shortest piece of the work, it'll be, of course, the abstract. But if I'm going to read the kind of the, the setup, I would read the introduction to a paper. That'll also help me figure out where in the rest of the paper I need to go if I'm looking for a specific thing. Um, So then you've taken first paragraph, set up why your research is relevant from a scientific or societal perspective. You've then taken me through what is the gap? What don't we know about this issue or topic? What do uh, you intend to do? What do you intend to investigate? Uh, what is your research question, hypotheses, uh, or hypotheses, and then what kind of methodology and data are you going to use to answer that research question? Now, the last, and this is kind of optional, but I always enjoy seeing it uh, and reading it, is a sort of map. And I mean, like a map, like a geographic map of the, uh, or a metaphor, uh, a map of the rest of the document. So I like to see something along the lines of, first, this thesis or this paper uh, reviews the literature In maybe this area, this area, this area. Second, this uh, thesis or this paper details the qualitative methods and analyses that have been used uh, or that that this paper uses or that are used to answer the questions, the research questions. Uh, Third, uh, this uh, thesis or this paper uh, presents the results and analysis that show blah, 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 blah. Uh, and fourth, uh, it concludes or discusses and then concludes whatever you have, whatever your highest level sections are. So give uh, a paragraph that kind of str- sets up the structure of the thesis and takes me, walks me through the basic structures. Now, um, this will give you a really solid introduction. Uh, these, uh, My best advice for writing an introduction is to wait until you've had the resultant analysis kind of Uh, solidified Wait until your literature review is really uh, squared away that way when you're writing your introduction you already know where you want to go with your whole paper and you can start that red thread at the beginning and kind of give the reader a very clear understanding now let me go back really quick to that first paragraph you should have some citations in that first paragraph Uh, if it's a a phenomena that you're investigating in society then you want to at least uh, refer to any research that might have been done on that phenomena very, very recent research or very, very uh, hyper focused research on that specific issue. Um, or you want, if you're justifying it from a scientific point of view, you want to cite a couple, uh, four or five, maybe at the max, uh, uh, key papers or uh, scientific articles that have been published around that uh, scientific issue, around that topic. From there, you may not have a lot more. Uh, citations in the introduction, but it is important that you, in, when you're setting up your introduction, especially that first paragraph or first two paragraphs, that you're really showcasing that uh, the work that you're doing is building off of something that exists, that has kind of been shown in science or in research. Um, the gap, you can also include some citations in there. So if you're setting up your gap, you might want to cite a piece of a, a piece of work or a piece of, of paper or a report that has uh, kind of investigated the closest the topic to what you want to investigate or what you're trying to show. So that way you can say, hey, there's a gap in the research. This is kind of the closest thing we've got. My research is going to show going to fill this gap by examining a specific uh, topic. And then you go into the rest of the introduction. I'm sorry, this is a little bit rambly, but I think that gives you a decent structure. Uh, Why is your research relevant in the first couple of paragraphs? Give me your gap, aim, research questions, and uh, methodology, basic sketch of that in the second, third, fourth paragraphs, and then the final paragraph in the introduction, give me a map of the rest of the thesis, rest of the paper, so I know what's coming up next. Uh, That should set you in for your introduction. Write your introduction when you're further along in the development of your overall paper, and you'll be in good shape. In part four, we're gonna cover writing research questions, which can be one of the most challenging pieces of your introduction. It's the responsibility of most scientists and researchers and scholars to provide some explanations for any kind of observable phenomena. So it's really about two key steps here. One is observation. I see something and it doesn't mean you literally need to see it. You could kind of see from a metaphorical stance. You could observe something from a metaphorical view uh, and then ask a question about it. So I see something has happened here. Why does it happen? And you might think right off the bat here that, Writing a good research question is all about explaining why and maybe that will work in some select cases But often why questions are really complicated and really difficult to answer properly or effectively within the scope of one uh, Paper or one research article So in answering a why question really should be reserved for if you're gonna write a 10 volume set of books uh, That really explains something in great 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 detail even then you may not end up being able to adequately explain a why uh, answer to a why question. Um, So why questions, things like, why are we here? Why is there war? Why does poverty exist? These sorts of questions are really existential and really challenging for a researcher to answer in one paper or one report. So there's a couple of different ways of going about writing a good research question. Uh, First of all, you really need to understand what it is that's happening. You really need to understand the phenomena in fairly uh, good detail because you're not going to be able to ask a good question about that phenomena if you're just approaching it with a kind of beginner's mindset. It might get you off the starting block, it might get you moving forward with what you want to research, but it's not the end game, certainly. And it won't make for a great paper because you're not going to be able to detail the different aspects of that phenomena so that the reader understands what it is that you've observed and why it's really important for them to know and understand. Why is it important for you to research? So a research question really has to get at the substance of a specific uh, piece of a specific phenomena or specific event, specific idea, specific topic. And there's a couple of ways of going about this. Uh, One is that you kind of look at the the processes, uh, or the mechanisms that are causing a specific phenomenon. So you can ask a how question. So how does, or how uh, is war? uh, No, 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 that's not a good one. How uh, has country X entered uh, the uh, information society? So what are the main causes for that country for entering the uh, information society or for, um, yeah, entering the information society? That's kind of a crappy example but you get my point here it's all about the process it's about the mechanisms that cause something to happen now this is very different than a why question which thinks, which is more about providing a holistic answer or response to the existence of that phenomena a how question really focuses on specific causal mechanisms that relate to the existence of that phenomena so what are a couple of things that might have caused what to happen what is happening or what has happened So. How question, good way of starting off with a research question, good way of understanding a phenomena, but you have to understand that phenomena in detail. And maybe another way of going about it, kind of the second way of approaching this is not about the causes, but really about what's, what it's made up of. So you could ask a what question. So what constitutes this, that, or the other thing about that phenomena? What are the principal uh, ideas related to that phenomena? What are the principal uh, effects of that phenomena? Really looking at what uh, that phenomena is made up of and trying to pick that apart in your study, in your research and in your empirical evidence. So that would be something that you could do when you're approaching your research question is in two ways. Think about How? What are the processes that might be causing that phenomena? That's a good research question to kind of pick apart. Uh, Or what? What is that phenomena made up of? What are the constituent parts? If I take it apart, what are this element, that element or that element? So there's two interesting ways of going about writing a research question there. Focus on how or focus on what. But. As a researcher, answering the why question can really be challenging. Save that for a PhD or your postdoc or your memoirs uh, that you write later in your life. In part five, we're gonna go through how to review the literature. Okay, let's talk literature review. Uh, this is kind of one of my favorite parts of doing research is actually reviewing the literature because I learn a lot in this process because you're kind of you're evaluating the state of the art. You're presenting the state of the art in ter- in, in what we know in terms of our knowledge on a specific subject. Um, but I want to caution you because literature reviews, they're kind of the the mindset that I think a lot of people come at them with is that it's just a summary. It's just a summary of the research, of what research is out there. And so I've seen a lot of literature reviews that are just article summaries. Uh, And this to me is not a literature review because there's no synthesis there. Um, And then I've seen literature reviews that kind of group some articles together and they just provide a summary of those articles. And sure, that might be part of your literature review, but it's definitely not the end game here. What you're really trying to do for, with the literature review is contextualize what a variety of different scientific topics in relation to your research aim. So again, we're trying to contextualize a series of different scientific topics, all of which might be interrelated in some way in some key dimensions that are also related to your topic. And what you wanna do is give the reader an understanding for how those ideas relate to what you're investigating, what you're researching. Um, So contextualization is the the number one thing behind a literature review, giving a reader an understanding for how your research relates to the state of the art when it comes to our knowledge on a a different variety of topics. Now when you're doing a literature review, the most important thing here is that it's anchored in science, so you need to seek out scientific articles. What that means is looking for peer-reviewed journals, peer-reviewed academic scientific journals. Now, how do you know if a journal is peer-reviewed? Well, one place is just to start with a good database. Google Scholar is really good when it comes to unearthing relevant scientific articles, and usually you can just read the title of the journal and you get a general understanding if that journal is a scientific and an academic journal, and then if you really want Want to kind of dig deep? Open up that journal's website and look to see what's the peer review process. Is there a peer review process? Uh, and try to understand what's the sort of uh, what's the impact of that journal, or maybe even just what's the uh, scientific relevance of that journal for your area of research, but also for the world of science in general. So start with scientific articles. Now, it's okay to sort of pepper into your literature review uh, scientific reports that maybe were produced by government or industry or, or any other uh, actor, any other organization. But I would keep these to a very uh, a limit. I would try to make sure that those don't take up the bulk of the references in your literature review, because this is those articles, uh, this is, they're not necessarily peer-reviewed, and so they don't always carry the same scientific weight that a peer-reviewed academic article would, ha- would have. Uh, and that brings up another issue, book chapters in kind of edited volumes or books in general. Now, uh, that really comes down to who the author is. So you might want to seek out the name of the author and try to understand what is their background? Are they just an industry person who is trying to create an academic article who, you know, hopefully could get this out there so that their company could build off of that? Or is it a government, uh, somebody who works for the government who is just trying to push an agenda? Or is it another uh, another scientist? Is it someone who has an academic career? And so that will give it a little bit more legitimacy, but the edited volume and the books are not necessarily held to the same caliber as a scientific journal article because they're not always peer-reviewed. The scientific journals typically are peer-reviewed. Uh, the edited volumes and, um, and book chapters uh, and books are not necessarily peer-reviewed. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't use and reference those books and those uh, book chapters. It's only to say that you can kind of take, that, take them with a grain of salt and that you're primary concentration should be on these scientific journals. Now, uh, so focus on scientific journals, uh, books and edited volumes a little bit and less so uh, academic uh, or, uh, yeah, academic reports published by government or industry and then there's another category of kind of uh, references that we can include in our literature review and that is laws and policies uh, so laws and policies are just things that government puts out that says hey this is what we're doing law I think everyone knows but a policy is just a kind of a document a normative document uh, hey this is an important thing important issue now those may be relevant for your literature review so you should include it but again those shouldn't be the basis for your literature review You're Your basis should always be scientific knowledge. What do we know in the field of science around these areas? Um, One of the trappings I find a lot of students, uh, a lot of uh, people that I work with and students uh, fall into is this issue of uh, importance and relevance. And so what they want to do in the literature review is tell me how important they want to tell the reader how important what they found is, how important what this article is. And so they'll use that word. This is an important finding because blah, 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 blah. Um, I always caution my students from doing that. I always caution the people I work with from doing that because. If you're having to tell a reader that something is important, then you haven't made a good enough case for why it's important. So you really should take a step back. If you find yourself using that word, "this is really important," uh, take a step back and think about how you can present that piece of work where the reader can then interpret the level of importance. Then they can understand a little bit better. Ah, this has a high degree of relevance. It's really important for what their line of thinking is. So uh, try to avoid. using uh, telling the reader how to feel about a specific finding or a specific piece of knowledge. Um, Another really key uh, issue here is how you structure your literature review. Now, I've said before in the organization video that you should have two to three headings and two to three paragraphs underneath that. That's fine. In literature review, you might want to extend it a little bit. So maybe you go three to four headings, three to four paragraphs, and that's fine. These are just rules of thumb. But uh, what I want to get to here is how you arrange each topic. Now, you can think of your headings more or less like keywords. What are the keywords that are associated with your topic that you're investigating, your research aim? And if you can think along those lines, then you can start to see a more or less kind of a map, a mind map or a bubble diagram of different ideas that are related to your topic. And again, we want to kind of narrow them as much as possible. Keep it around three or four so that uh, you're not giving your reader more information than they actually need in order to understand your work. And that's what it comes down to in a literature review is really you're just trying to give the reader enough understanding about the, the, the world of science that's related to your topic uh, so that they can interpret and understand what your findings are and the relevance and importance of your findings and how that extends research in some significant way. So whenever you're structuring your headings, I always like to think big to small. So what's the big ideas, the big topic areas that are associated with your research? And then take me one step at a time to narrow, 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 narrow until the narrowest heading should be really closely related to your research aim. Almost uh, identical if there's any kind of research out there about that topic uh, or really close, just one step removed, and then everything before that gets a little bit more abstract, maybe a little bit more theoretical. Um, I also find often that uh, the first heading is probably going to contain the most references and citations, and then as you go through the literature review, every subsequent section will have kind of a fewer number of uh, of citations and references. So that means that you're going to have to think ahead about all the uh, research literature that you've read or that you've reviewed and try to organize it in some uh, some uh, way that shows some meaning to the reader of how they're kind of going about uh, how you're taking them on that journey uh, in your paper. Uh, So that means you might have to reorganize things frequently. And that means reorganizing headings. Okay, maybe put this heading above that one or that one below that one uh, and reorganize paragraphs within a heading and paragraphs between headings. So you might look at a series of paragraphs within a heading and say, actually, you know, we should move this paragraph to the beginning and that paragraph towards the end. And then it makes a little bit more sense or there's a clearer line, clear thread so that the reader has a, a, a clear path to follow. Uh, and you might say, oh, well, on this heading, I have these three or four paragraphs, but this paragraph doesn't really belong to this heading. I need to move it to a different heading. And that's OK. That's what you should be doing. That shows that you have some reflection and some of your, uh, analytic mindset when you're going about your literature review. Um, And then uh, the the last thing is uh, at the end of each heading, at the end of each uh, section of your literature review, uh, that heading or that paragraph I would dedicate to explaining to the reader how what they've just read in that heading, under that heading, relates to your research topic. So you start a heading with kind of an introductory paragraph that lays the basic framework for that heading. This is what we're gonna be talking about in this heading. Then you give me two, maybe three paragraphs that get into that issue in depth. And then on the last paragraph, take me back to your aim. So what does all of this knowledge mean when it comes to the aim of your research? What it is that you're trying to discover? What it is that you're trying to reveal or investigate? Uh, That will really help the reader, and again, kind of walk them through uh, uh, the section. When they start a section, they're like, "Okay, this is what the section's about. Here's some interesting information. Maybe here's some more interesting information, and then finally, how all of that information relates to uh, to your topic, your key area of investigation." Now, the reader has a good understanding, a good anchoring in what you're doing, and then they can go into the next section. So, the recap. Uh, One, contextualization. That's what literature reviews are all about. Contextualizing your research aims in relation to the huge wealth of knowledge that is out there. Uh, Number two, use scientific articles. Use something like Google Scholar to find them, but make sure that most of your uh, literature review is anchored in those scientific articles. And I usually recommend my students, if it's a kind of 10-page paper, to shoot for 20 references in the literature review. Try to find 20 really good references solid references that relate to the topics that you're uh, exploring in the literature review now you're always going to find more knowledge than you can fit in a literature review so that's important part of this process is really synthesizing and, and, and digesting distilling all the, uh, the amount of uh, knowledge out there or at least all of the relevant knowledge knowledge is relevant to your research topic into a short uh, synthesis Number three, always go big to small. Give me the grandest ideas, the broadest ideas, the ideas that are broadest in scope, uh, the ideas that have the most research behind them and the ideas that are more theoretical and abstract. And then walk me through step by step things that are a little bit more concrete, a little bit less abstract and a little bit more focused on your research topic topic this topic rank them most applicable to least applicable and do the same thing maybe in your results or whatever else you're working on i think that can really help you structure your writing it can help you craft that narrative that red thread uh, and help you focus on what it is that matters now you might find that oh all 30 of these topics deal with my aim or my objective fine or maybe all 30 of those are equally weighted they all equally deal maybe your objective is too broad focus your objective, and then you'll find that you'll be able to create a clearer narrative. So number one, On the highest level, make sure that you can justify why your research is relevant, how you've conducted it, and what you have found. Structure your document into these parts, introduction, literature review, methods, results, analysis, discussion, in some shape or form, and your conclusion. Make sure you're organizing your sections into two to three headings, or two to three subheadings, and your section, your headings and subheadings into three to four paragraphs. And then make sure that you have a very clear narrative that relates to your th- your topic, relates to your aim, that's throughout the whole thesis, and don't be afraid of getting rid of stuff that doesn't belong. In part six, this is all about describing your methods, your data, and your forms of analysis. Okay, let's talk methods. Uh, I was a huge methods geek when I first started re- doing research. Uh, even back in my master's degree, I just read every book I could find about research methodology and I found it so fascinating and there's an absolute plethora. Uh, There's many, many, many books uh, written about methodologies, scientific methodologies. It's actually a field of inquiry all to itself. So you could actually specialize in scientific methods, developing new methods, evaluating existing methods, and really going deep on this issue of methodologies. Uh, But I really enjoyed methodologies uh, just because it was kind of seeing the behind the scenes of research, getting to see uh, what's going on uh, in order for us to create this knowledge that we have out there. And so it was was a great experience to kind of come up in research as a methodologist to begin with and then later an applied researcher and uh, eventually a little bit more of a theoretical researcher. Um, But methodologies, uh, method sections in a report or research article is all about Procedure. It's all about the how of your research. So, how are you conducting that, the scientific inquiry? How are you conducting your investigation? Um, and so, I think of it a lot like a recipe. So, if you've been on any blog in the last, I don't know, 20 years, uh, you've seen recipes that start off with the person who's telling you about the recipe, their experience with the recipe. So, it's kind of the backstory of the recipe. And then they go on to talk about the ingredients and the procedure, what it is that you do in order to create that dish and that's kind of what you're doing in your methods section You're providing a backstory, a sort of justification for why you chose the methodology you chose, why you're approaching it the way you've approached it. Uh, Then you're providing some ingredients. What is the data that you've collected? And then you're providing a description of a procedure. So what is the ways in which you analyze that data? So let's just start off with that justification piece. So the first thing I usually want to see when I'm reading a method section is some sort of description of the overarching methodology that the paper uses and then a clear justification for why the the author, why the researcher chose that methodology. And that justification, like all justifications in science, needs to be an analytic or a scientific reasoning behind it, not a, well, it was just easy to do or it was feasible or it just made sense at the time. You really need to find what it is in your topic of investigation that that kind of brings uh, that kind of dr- uh, that makes you think about that sort of method that kind of draws you into that specific methodology now when we're talking methods we basically can break it down into three categories you got qualitative methods which is the area that I'm most expert in quantitative methods which I've done some research in quantitative uh, that uses quantitative methodology but not so much not as much as I've done in qualitative and then there's mixed methods research, which kind of combines qualitative and quantitative in interesting and new ways. Now you have to, what I would recommend is starting off that section, that methodology section with just a clear description. You're using quantitative, you're using qualitative, you're using mixed methods. Which one are you using? And give me uh, some justification and some citations, some references to specific uh, books, articles about that methodology so that the reader has a very clear understanding that you know what you're talking about. You're not just you know kind of going off on a, on a tangent, but you're actually anchoring your work the justification for your work in one of those three methodological areas. And uh, you're really anchoring it in a research tradition. Uh, So understanding the traditions behind those methodologies. So start off, give me qual quant or uh, mixed and tell me, okay, what is your justification? What is the reasoning behind which you chose that methodology? Now, the real reason may just be happenstance. Oh, I just like this method. I'm good at this method. But the reasoning that you have to give the reader, the scientific reasoning has to relate to your topic in some way, shape or form. So your topic kind of gives rise to an appropriate methodology. Um, and then you need to uh, again cite some references to key pieces of academic literature that are related to that methodology. So you're telling the reader, hey, I chose this method. This is what this method's all about. And this is my justification for it. And here's some interesting re- readings. This is some interesting literature that I'm drawing from. So that's the first to start off with. Now that may take a paragraph, two paragraphs, maybe even three paragraphs. Next stage, next step of the methodology, the next thing that I check for is, are you walking me through the data collection? Either the data you will collect in the case of a proposal or the data you have collected in the case of a research article or a report. Um, so get specific here. I need to know very, very concretely what you have done. So what data uh, have you collected uh, give me the specific forms of that data call it a name and again cite back to research traditions that have used that same those same forms of data to investigate different areas or different uh, topics of, 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 of scientific inquiry uh, next thing in that air in that uh, in this uh, kind of subsection I guess you could say is uh, how you collected it so take me through the procedure step by step by step by step and I'm not talking about like oh I I emailed this person to ask them to uh, come for an interview. I'm talking about give me a broad painting or broad understanding of the steps you took to collect that data. How did you go about collecting that data? And again, I we, a reviewer wants to see specifics here. It doesn't necessarily mean that it should be super long, but it should be super, super, super concrete. So if you're conducting kind of in-depth interviews, who did you interview? Give me a category of group of kind of people that you interviewed. Uh, how many people did you interview? Give me specific numbers. Give me some background understanding. What so? Why did you pick this group of people to uh, to interview? So that the reader has a very clear understanding not only what you did but why you did it third key section or subsection, however you want to think of it, of the methodology is uh, the analysis. So again, you're going to walk the reader through your procedure, what you did to analyze your data. Uh, give them a clear understanding of what form of analysis you used, how you use that analysis, and then of course justify. Why did you use that form of analysis? Why was that form of analysis key for your methodology? You have many, many different options when it comes to analysis. You have many options when it comes to the data you collect, and you have many options when it comes to the methodology that you've chosen. So give me justifications across all three of those dimensions. Why did you choose the overarching methodology, quant, qual, or mixed? Uh, Why did you choose that data to collect, the specific data that you collected? Uh, And then why did you choose that form of analysis? And again, give me concrete steps that you've gone through in that process so that if I read your methodology, I should be able to take that section and reproduce what you've done to a fair extent i should be able to reproduce where you uh how you approached your data collection and what you collected so three things number one Justify at the beginning of the method section, did you choose quant, qual, or mixed? And why did you choose that? Number two, walk me through the data collection. Why did you collect that data? And why did you collect that data in that way? Number three, uh, your form of analysis. Tell me what kind of analysis, a form of analysis you used, and walk me through the procedures that you used and why you used it. Uh, all throughout the method section, there should be peppered in citations to relevant research from the methodolo- methodology literatures or from scientific articles that have used this form of methodology to examine a topic that's reasonably related to your topic. Um, I usually look for between 10, maybe 15 total citations in a methodology section, but it might be uh, individual to you depending on your field of inquiry and depending on how much uh, length you have in your uh scientific article or report and reorganize paragraphs within a heading and paragraphs between headings. So you might look at a a series of paragraphs within a heading and say, actually, you know, we should move this paragraph to the beginning and that paragraph towards the end. And then it makes a little bit more sense or there's a clearer line, clearer thread so that the reader has a a, a clear path to follow. Uh, And you might say, oh, well, on this heading, I have these three or four paragraphs, but this paragraph doesn't really belong to this heading. I need to move it to a different heading. And that's okay. That's what you should be doing. That shows that you have some reflection and some of your uh, analytic mindset when you're going about your literature review. Um, and then uh, the, the last thing is uh, at the end of each heading, at the end of each uh, section of your literature review, uh, that heading I, or that paragraph I would dedicate to explaining to the reader how what they've just read in that heading, under that heading, relates to your research topic. So you start a heading with kind of an introductory paragraph that lays the basic framework for that heading. This is what we're gonna be talking about in this heading. Then you give me two, maybe three paragraphs that get into that issue in depth. And then on the last paragraph, take me back to your aim. So what does all of this knowledge mean when it comes to the aim of your research? What it is that you're trying to discover? What it is that you're trying to reveal or investigate? Uh, That will really help the reader and again kind of walk them through uh, uh, the section when they start a section they're like okay this is what the section's about here's some interesting information maybe here's some more interesting information and then finally how all of that information relates to uh, to your topic your key area of investigation now the reader has a good understanding a good anchoring in what you're doing and then they can go into the next section so the recap Uh, One, contextualization. That's what literature reviews are all about. Contextualizing your research aims in relation to the huge wealth of knowledge that is out there. Uh, Number two, use scientific articles. Use something like Google Scholar to find them, but make sure that most of your uh, literature review is anchored in those scientific articles. And I usually recommend my students, if it's a kind of 10-page paper, to shoot for 20 references in the literature review. Try to find 20 really good references solid references that relate to the topics that you're uh, exploring in the literature review now you're always going to find more knowledge than you can fit in a literature review so that's important part of this process is really synthesizing and, and, and digesting distilling all the, uh, the amount of uh, knowledge out there or at least all of the relevant knowledge knowledge is relevant to your research topic into a short uh, synthesis Number three, always go big to small. Give me the grandest ideas, the broadest ideas, ideas that are broadest in scope, uh, the ideas that have the most research behind them and the ideas that are more theoretical and abstract. And then walk me through step by step things that are a little bit more concrete, a little bit less abstract and a little bit more focused on your research topic topic, this topic, rank them most applicable to least applicable and do the same thing maybe in your results or whatever else you're working on. I think that can really help you structure your writing. It can help you craft that narrative, that red thread uh, and help you focus on what it is that matters. Now you might find that, oh, all 30 of these topics deal with my aim or my objective, fine. Or maybe all 30 of those are equally weighted. They all equally deal. Maybe your objective is too broad focus your objective and then you'll find that you'll be able to create a clearer narrative so number one on the highest level, make sure that you can justify why your research is relevant, how you've conducted it, and what you have found. Structure your document into these parts, introduction, literature review, methods, results, analysis, discussion, in some shape or form, and your conclusion. Make sure you're organizing your sections into two to three headings, or two to three subheadings, and your section, your headings and subheadings into three to four paragraphs. And then make sure that you have a very clear narrative that relates relates to your your topic, relates to your aim, that's throughout the whole thesis and don't be afraid of getting rid of stuff that doesn't belong. In part seven, we're going to go through how to present your results and your analysis. Okay, now you're writing your results and analysis. This section, it kind of feels on the surface pretty straightforward and easy. You're just presenting your results, how hard could it be? Uh, But there's some tricks here that I think are worth talking about because uh, the results and analysis is is, the meat of your paper. Now, unfortunately, I think it's also part of a paper that people skip a lot of the times. So if somebody's kind of doing a quick review of your paper, they might look at the introduction, right? They'll just get a general understanding for what you did or your, even your abstract. They might only read your abstract or they might read the introduction and conclusion or introduction, discussion and conclusion, but they might skip over. A lot of times they skip over your results and analysis unless they're really trying to probe a specific thing that you've found, a specific finding that you've had. So in some ways, the results and analysis is r- relatively straightforward, but in other ways, I think we can we can pick it apart a little bit here now there are huge differences in how results and analysis are presented and those can be based on the methodology that you've chosen it can be based on the discipline that you're working in so take all of this with a grain of salt and whatever you do just go with what is appropriate for your methodology or your discipline Uh, because what i'm going to present here is more or less my experience writing a lot of qualitative research uh, and a little bit of quantitative research but not really. Uh, and in in social science, uh, science and technology studies. So it's not necessarily appropriate for across all disciplines or even across different methodologies. And it can also differ on the kinds of data that you've collected. So there are different ways of collecting data. There's different types of data that you can collect and that might change how you present your results and how you present your analysis. Uh, One kind of key thing here is to start big and go small, just like in your literature review, find the one key finding that you've discovered, your one key area that you want to showcase in your results uh, and your analysis and put that at the front. Right, put that right in the reader's face so that's the first thing they come to. And then as you go through your uh, results and analysis section, give them a little bit more narrowly defined uh, findings as you go forward. I think that's just a general rule that can be applied here in the results and analysis as well. Um, walk me through these findings. Uh, as a reviewer, what I wanna see is not just that the uh, the author is just putting out there's a whole bunch of uh, knowledge, but you're really taking me step by step, taking me by the hand, step by step, step and walking me through so that I understand what it is you have found. Now, this is really important for a reviewer who is not right there in in the middle of the topic that you're investigating. Now, generally speaking, the topic that you're investigating is you're going to be one of the only people in the world who have ever investigated that topic. And so what you want to do is make sure that you acknowledge and recognize that your expertise may in this topic may be greater than the reviewer's expertise who is reviewing your topic. A reviewer's job is not to know everything that you know or know more than you know, but to evaluate the scientific quality of the piece of work that you've done. And if they don't understand your results or analysis because you're speaking in a way or you've written it in a way that talks over their head or doesn't uh, kind of take them by the hand and walk them through each section of the analysis, then you're going to lose the reviewer and then they're going to ask you either to rewrite it or they're going to start poking holes in it because they're going to see inconsistencies or they might see uh, errors where uh, where you thought where in your head there are none. Um, so walk me through those findings. And I usually suggest to my students and to the people that I work with that we really only focus on two or three key findings. Now, in any research, project you're going to end up with a ton of data and a ton of analysis and a ton of new knowledge and you want to cut out from that piece of work two or three key findings for that article for that specific article when articles start presenting four five six and seven findings uh, at least i as a reviewer start to tune out or start to have a harder time understanding how all those findings fit together and how they apply to your specific area of inquiry so focus in on two to Three key findings that are interrelated. That again start from kind of the most important finding, and then gradually take the reader through uh, the different uh, findings that you've uh, that you that you want them to to know about. And I think the last piece of advice here is just, again, I've said it a thousand times in these videos, contextualize your work. So contextualize the finding for the reader. Contextualize it in relation to your topic area, the specific area of inquiry that you're involved in. That will help the reader understand not just what you found but why what you found means something why does it have meaning why does it have relevance why does it uh, work in the scope of the aim that you're 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 focused on now you might find in this process that oh no i have a finding here that doesn't fit with my research aim and you basically got a couple of choices here you can one you can leave that finding for a separate article Great, no problem there. You're still going to be producing it. You're still going to contribute science or you can reformat your aim or rewrite your aim a little bit to adjust it, to make it fit within the broader scope, the broader narrative that you're constructing with your results and analysis. Now that may also mean that you have to go back to your literature review and rewrite some of your literature review, or you may have to rewrite your research question even. So really take a, a good uh, step back when you're conducting your analysis and think about how you can package different elements that you want to show your reader in a way that fits within a broader scope of the paper. Of course, all of this is dependent not only on your research traditions, uh, your discipline, your methodology, but also how much space you have in the paper. Uh, I've written papers that are like nice, tight five pagers. I've written papers that are in the well, hundreds of pages. So the longer the paper, the more uh, room you have to do your analysis. But I would still try to think about your analysis in the in a, in a framework of two to three key findings, maybe with some sub findings underneath each of those key findings so that you can really bring forward uh, as much data as you can in the scope of your of your paper and usually I find that the results and analysis section that's the bulk of the paper Uh, so it might be up to half of the length of your paper maybe a third of the length of your paper so that's really an area where you need to devote a lot of attention a lot of time to writing it Uh, but also you need to kind of understand as a general framework for your overall writing that the that's the meat of your paper that's the most substance there so three quick things here one uh, start big, go small. Always, it's a good rule of thumb, uh, but especially in your analysis, start from the biggest, most uh, uh, important key finding that you have ha- that you found uh, and then take them, the reader through step-by-step. Really two to three key findings on a kind of abstract heading level is good. Uh, and then if you need, or if you have room for in your paper, some sub findings underneath each of those key findings, that's fine as well. And always, always, always contextualize for the reader and every heading you should have some sort of section, paragraph, couple of sentences that contextualize what does this finding mean in relation to your area of investigation? Reproduce what you've done to a fair extent. I should be able to reproduce where you uh how you approached your data collection and what you collected. So, three things. Number one. Justify at the beginning of the method section, did you choose quant, qual, or mixed? And why did you choose that? Number two, walk me through the data collection. Why did you collect that data? And why did you collect that data in that way? Number three, uh, your form of analysis. Tell me what kind of analysis, a form of analysis you used, and walk me through the procedures that you used and why you used it. Uh, All throughout the method section, there should be peppered in citations to relevant research from the methodology literatures or from scientific articles that have used this form of methodology to examine a topic that's reasonably related to your topic. Um, I usually look for between 10, maybe 15 total citations in a methodology section, but it might be uh, individual to you depending on your field of inquiry and depending on how much uh, length you have in your uh, scientific article or report and reorganize paragraphs within a heading and paragraphs between headings. So you might look at a a series of paragraphs within a heading and say, actually, you know, we should move this paragraph to the beginning and that paragraph towards the end. And then it makes a little bit more sense or there's a clearer line, clearer thread so that the reader has a a, a clear path to follow. Uh, And you might say, oh, well, on this heading, I have these three or four paragraphs, but this paragraph doesn't really belong to this heading. I need to move it to a different heading. And that's okay. That's what you should be doing. That shows that you have some reflection and some of your uh, analytic mindset when you're going about your literature review. Um, and then uh, the, the last thing is uh, at the end of each heading, at the end of each uh, section of your literature review, uh, that heading I, or that paragraph, I would dedicate to explaining to the reader how what they've just read in that heading, under that heading, relates to your research topic. So you start a heading with kind of an introductory paragraph that lays the basic framework for that heading. This is what we're gonna be talking about in this heading. Then you give me two, maybe three paragraphs that get into that issue in depth. And then on the last paragraph, take me back to your aim. So what does all of this knowledge mean when it comes to the aim of your research? What it is that you're trying to discover? What it is that you're trying to reveal or investigate? Uh, That will really help the reader and again kind of walk them through uh, uh, the section when they start a section they're like okay this is what the section's about here's some interesting information maybe here's some more interesting information and then finally how all of that information relates to uh, to your topic your key area of investigation now the reader has a good understanding a good anchoring in what you're doing and then they can go into the next section so the recap, uh, one, contextualization, that's what literature reviews are all about. Contextualizing your research aims in relation to the huge wealth of knowledge that is out there. Uh, number two, use scientific articles, use something like Google Scholar to find them, but make sure that most of your uh, literature review is anchored in those scientific articles. And I usually recommend my students, if it's a kind of 10-page paper, to shoot for 20 references in the literature review. Try to find 20 really good references, solid references that relate to the topics that you're uh, exploring in the literature review. Now, you're always going to find more knowledge than you can fit in a literature review. So that's an important part of this process is really synthesizing and and digesting, distilling all the the amount of uh, knowledge out there, or at least all of the relevant knowledge, knowledge that's relevant to your research topic, into a short uh, synthesis. Number three, always go big to small. Give me the grandest ideas, the broadest ideas, the ideas that are broadest in scope, uh, the ideas that have the most research behind them, and the ideas that are more theoretical and abstract. And then walk me through step by step things that are a little bit more concrete, a little bit less abstract, and a little bit more focused on your research topic topic this topic rank them most applicable to least applicable and do the same thing maybe in your results or whatever else you're working on i think that can really help you structure your writing it can help you craft that narrative that red thread uh, and help you focus on what it is that matters now you might find that oh all 30 of these topics deal with my aim or my objective fine or maybe all 30 of those are equally weighted they all equally deal maybe your objective is too broad Focus your objective, and then you'll find that you'll be able to create a clearer narrative. So, number one, On the highest level, make sure that you can justify why your research is relevant, how you've conducted it, and what you have found. Structure your document into these parts, introduction, literature review, methods, results, analysis, discussion, in some shape or form, and your conclusion. Make sure you're organizing your sections into two to three headings, or two to three subheadings, and your section, your headings and subheadings into three to four paragraphs. And then make sure that you have a very clear narrative that relates relates to your your topic, relates to your aim, that's throughout the whole thesis. And don't be afraid of getting rid of stuff that doesn't belong. In part eight, we're gonna go through the discussion section of your paper. So how do you discuss your results in light of the literature? Let's talk about your discussion section. This is one of those pieces of a paper that can be really tough to nail right. Uh, But it's also one of the parts of the paper that could be the most illuminating when it comes to your research results. And that's because it's not just about kind of waxing philosophically about your thoughts on your results. Uh, new researchers tend to kind of fall down that rabbit hole where they're just kind of maybe representing their results but then talking about them abstractly or kind of in a kind of wandering narrative. It's not about that at all. It's really about discussing and reflecting on your results and your analysis. Uh, it's really focused on relating your results to the literature you covered in your literature review. Now, That's a really important point because it's not about drawing new research into the paper. If what you're doing in the discussion is citing research that you haven't cited in a literature review, then you're really uh, falling short. What you want to do is discuss the results in relation to the literature, the topics in the, that you've covered in your literature review. Uh, so the first thing you want to do in the a, in a discussion section is really just answer your research question. So just start off with one quick sentence, one short, clear sentence that responds to your research question. Now, if you're writing an especially long paper, if you're writing a thesis or a dissertation, you definitely want to remind the reader what your research question was, because that might have been presented to them 50 pages ago. So... If it's a long paper, remind them what the research question was. If it's a shorter paper, 10 pages, 15, 20 pages, you can just launch right in. This paper responds to the research question by the, and then say what it is that you're trying to say about your research results. Uh, The second thing you want to do is more or less summarize your research results. So give me two to three paragraphs that cover the main themes or key points of interest on your research results. It's not meant to uh, perfectly restate your research results. It's meant to take your results and kind of squish them down into a smaller package, synthesize them into a couple of key paragraphs, key points, key issues, so that I as a reader understand what you're trying to draw out of your results That you will then relate to the literature that you've covered in the literature review. Now, you might want to break the next piece of information out into several different subheadings because what you're going to do in the third piece is start relating different elements of your results to the topics that you covered in your research, in your literature review. I'm going to say that again. You want to take specific elements out of your results and relate them two topics in your research in your literature review. I'm gonna miss I'm gonna say that wrong so many times now. Um And you can kind of do this in two different ways. Number one, you can confirm the evidence or the findings from previous research. So you can say, my research found this. This was one of my key results. This is something that I want uh, pointed out already in my results and analysis. And this relates to this topic of research, maybe cite a couple of key authors, again, cite things that you've already cited in the literature review, not new stuff. If you have happened upon new stuff, new research that's come out that you want to cite, put that into the literature review as well. And you can just cite it in the right topic or right heading in the literature review. So you're saying, here's what I found. Here's what previous research has shown. And then here's how my research confirms that. So in one way or another, your research is going to have said more or less the same thing as prior research, but you want to just show that, show that evidence, really make that connection clear for the reader. That's one way you can relate your findings to previous research. Now, the other way is to extend prior research. So now you're moving beyond just confirming. You're moving beyond just, I found this, they found that, we found kind of the same thing. And we're saying that I found this. They found that, but my research takes that and moves it a little bit forward or changes the direction a little bit or maybe it expands the way we understand a certain issue or topic in the that's uh, present in the research literature. So it's really interesting to find that sort of thing in a discussion section because now you can see the justification behind why you did this research in the, per, in the first place. There was a specific scientific need, and you've created that uh, solution to that need. You've filled that need in some in significant way, and you've done that by extending prior research. Now, a lot of people think, especially when they're in an early stage of research, that it's all about kind of refuting uh, prior research being able to contradict what other call scholars have said but that's a rare 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 occurrence in research because often it's very difficult to refute what a pre- previous scholar has said because the issues that we're researching are really complicated and really tough to kind of pick apart and what one scientist might have found 10 years ago, you might have found something different, but that doesn't mean it contradicts. It only means that it might change the way we think about a specific topic or a specific issue. So I always try to avoid saying that I'm refuting what prior research has said or contradicting it in some way and really think about it as how I've extended prior research or what parts, what aspects of prior research am I confirming that that evidence still holds up even in my study. So let's go back through. Three main things in your uh, discussion section. Uh, First of all, make sure that what you're discussing isn't just your philosophical beliefs around this topic or what you think the results mean, but you're really relating your results to the literature that you covered in your literature review. So number one, answer your research question. Number two, uh, summarize your results in two to three paragraphs. And then number three, you wanna break this into some subheadings Talk about how your results relate to prior research, how that relates to the research covered in your literature review. And you can do this in two ways. One, by confirming what prior research has shown, or two, by extending what prior research has shown. So now you have two different ways of talking about your results in the discussion section. In part nine, we're going to finally get to the end of your paper and write your conclusion. Now, the last chunk of any paper of any scientific or academic article is usually some sort of conclusion now depending on the scientific discipline you might end up with a situation where you just put this conclusion into the discussion so you just have discussion slash conclusion or discussion and conclusion sometimes you'll end up with a section that's conclusion and recommendations or something along those lines But really what we're talking about here is just the last section of your paper, and we're just going to call it here the conclusion. Now, there's two key uh, reasons for having a conclusion. Number one is just to provide a bit of a summary of the results. So that way, if anybody is just kind of skipping the whole paper and going all the way to the end and saying, tell me what's the meat of this paper, what's the most important thing about what you found, they'll find it right there at the front center in the beginning of the conclusion. The next thing they're really looking for, if they're just going straight to the conclusion, is some sort of recommendation. So what can I do with this new knowledge? So you've given me all this cool new ideas. Give me something practical, something uh, tangible that I can do to take this forward one more step. And there's a couple of different ways of doing this, and we're going to talk through all of them. Um, So let's just start off with that number one point. Restate your key findings. So again, this is just a synthesis of the main two to three findings that you have discovered, that you've revealed, that you've shown in your paper. Now, this is in some ways going to kind of repeat what you have in your discussion section, but that's okay, because often people will just skip the middle of a paper and run straight to the conclusion. And we wanna make sure that the, anybody who's reading the conclusion gets that information, gets those two to three key findings. Now, if for whatever reason, you're having to write a really short paper that's like eight pages long or something along those lines, You want to take a step back and think, where can I cut that that repeated element out? And I would typically recommend people cut it out of the discussion. So if you've already synthesized your results in the discussion, take that out of there, put it into the conclusion instead, because you want to make sure that the results are specified, are detailed uh, in a high level uh, in the uh, conclusion. Because, again, people might skip the whole thing and just go straight to the conclusion. So number one, restate your findings. Number two, provide some recommendations. And there's three different categories of recommendations that I think about whenever I'm looking at a conclusion. Number one, and probably the most important for 90% of scientific papers, give me some recommendations for future research. So where can I take this knowledge and then take the next step forward? This is not about the limitations of your study. This is not about, oh, I didn't do enough in my study. It's not about that at all. What it is about is saying, hey, I've taken us this far, you, the reader, Anyone who wants to build off of this, here's how I would suggest you take this further. So it's kind of handing that baton to the next generation of researchers. It's handing this off to someone else who can take this forward and then do something new and interesting uh, with that. And there's a few different ways you can do that now. Uh, One way is kind of methodologically changing what you've done. So you might have done an exploratory qualitative study. And so your recommendation may be take this topic area that I've already researched with some qualitative methods, some in-depth qualitative methods, and reproduce that study, but instead of using qualitative methodology, do a statistical analysis and do some hypothesis testing. So one of the things that you might have revealed in a qualitative study is that there's a few questions we still have around these issues, and that can then be the basis of forming some hypotheses. So that's one way, just flip it up methodologically. So if you've done qualitative, Suggest a quantitative, if you've done a quantitative research, suggest some qualitative research. Uh, The second way is to change the population that you're focusing on. So if you're focusing on this group of people, group A, say, okay, we would want uh, if you want to reproduce this study in a different way, same topic, same ideas, but change the focus from this population to population group B. That can help change the uh, findings and give you some new insights into this area of research. So methodologically change. Population of focus that you you could change. You can also change any other kind of variable or topic of interest in your study, and you can get a new and different perspective on that piece of work. Now, don't get crazy with this. Don't go kind of completely radical and suggest if you're doing a behavioral science research, suggest that somebody do a research study in physics. Uh, You're not trying to jump into a completely different frame of thinking or scientific tradition. You're really just taking us that one little next step. Where can I go from here? Um, So that's number one when it comes to providing recommendations. Most important thing, provide recommendations for future scientists. The second most important thing, and I think this is really critical for any kind of applied research, any kind of action research, is that you provide some recommendations for practice. Now, whatever research area you've been investigating, Ideally, what you're going to get from that investigation is some knowledge that can be put into practice. So give practitioners, however you would define the term practitioners, maybe if you're doing psychological research, maybe it's uh, it's new practices for therapists, maybe it's new practices for government agencies responsible for mental health. It just depends on your topic area, but whomever you think of as practitioners. In my field of computer science, I think practitioners in terms of programmers often it's what get what can i give (coughs) what can i give programmers advice that i can give programmers to change their way of thinking to change what they're doing or how they're doing it You could also think of it in an organizational perspective. So what information can I give to organizations to change the way they operate? So that's the second way is practice. How can I provide some recommendations for practice? Now, this kind of gets dicey for a lot of researchers. They kind of feel a little insecure because they think, oh, my gosh, this knowledge that I've created, it may not be kind of ironclad and like... Proven beyond the shadow of a doubt. So I don't want to give a recommendation for something that might be wrong. Look, that's not your decision. Your decision is, is really just to lay it out. So that other people can kind of pick it up and figure out what to do with it. So providing some recommendations for practice is not taking responsibility for the the way the organizations are putting that into practice. It's just putting out some ideas, some suggestions that organizations can use to take forward. Now, if you're really feeling insecure that organizations might be using this unethically, or that whomever you think of as practitioners might be misusing or misinterpreting your results, then just take a step back and think what. What's the next most kind of easy recommendation to make? So if you're not secure about making a very, very precise recommendation, take a step back and just give a more general recommendation. So that way anyone reading this paper can kind of understand here's where their thinking lies when it comes to doing something in practice. So it can just be a general approach. Now the third kind of way of making recommendations is recommendations for policy. This often gets overlooked because people get really focused in on making impact and impact often is affiliated or associated with kind of these grassroots movements with people on the ground kind of making things happen. But making recommendations for policy can really amplify your results. It can amplify the way your knowledge is being used. Now, again... Take some caution here. You don't want to make a recommendation for policy that leads us into a really dangerous or difficult situation. Take a step back again, provide a more general uh, kind of analysis, a more general understanding of how you see your results and how they could be used in a policy. Now what I often find, especially in new researchers, is that they make recommendations for policy having no idea about anything related to policy. Now, I'm not saying you've got to be a policy expert here, but you should know what are the general policy trends in your field. So that way, when you're making that recommendation, you're actually making a novel or a new recommendation and not kind of recommending something that people are already doing or that policymakers have been doing for 10 years now. So try to make a new recommendation for policy or just a new way of thinking policymakers aren't looking for you to prescribe to them what to do. They're not looking to say, hey, you scientists tell me how to make a law. They know how to make laws. What they look to you is for new ideas, new ways of thinking, new empirically validated approaches for doing something in a certain way, for moving an agenda forward, for moving an idea into law, moving an idea into policy. So really think about how you can translate what you've found into that space. And that may mean you have to take a step back and just provide a general narrative that they can pick up on so that they have something to refer to whenever they're creating new policy. So that's my general recommendations for conclusion. Typically, this is a very tight, short section, a couple of paragraphs max. So again, with your recommendations, you're not going to be able to go into massive amounts of detail. It's just about providing a couple of key ideas, indicators, areas of interest that people can take forward. So number one, restate your results because often people will just skip to the conclusion, read the conclusion, and then they need to know what you found. Number two, provide some key recommendations. And you can do this in three different ways. Sometimes you might want to do them in all, three ways. Number one, create recommendations for scientists. Two, create recommendations for practitioners. And three, create recommendations for policymakers so that anyone who's reading your knowledge that you've created, reading your research, can take it forward into the next stage. And in part 10 this one is a little bit special here because first of all it's a screen capture so you're not going to get everything on audio that you would at my youtube channel where you can watch the video Uh, but i think it's still got some important information here the audio quality is also exceptionally poor so i apologize for that so we're going to talk now about citations and what really is important here is that you recognize or acknowledge uh, authors, research, academics, uh, any kind of source material that you use as a basis for your article. Now, it may get a little bit confusing because you may read a lot and then you think, oh, this was my thought, not necessarily a thought that I can attribute to someone else. And so it's important that as you're doing your literature review, that you really think through the process so that you're not um, kind of mistakenly uh, assuming that a thought is your own when in actuality that thought can be attributed to a specific scholar, or a specific piece of uh, literature, or a specific piece of research. Um, so it's really important that we refer to other authors, refer to other scholars, refer to our source material throughout any kind of academic paper or academic report. And my starting point for all of this sort of thing is Google Scholar. So Google Scholar is just a database or it's a search engine that we can use to kind of uh, seek out Scholarly papers, reports, and and things like that. Um, It's not because it just because it's in Google Scholar doesn't mean that it's the most highly vetted, best research that's out there. It only means that Google considers it some sort of scholarly work. Um, So, please be uh, kind of critical and think through what is it about this uh, piece of information that I can consider reliable, what is it about the research methodology that that uh, scholar has uh, kind of conducted that makes it robust enough for me to want to cite it. All right. So to just get started right in, I'm just going to put my name in here and then you can kind of see how Google Scholar works. Uh, it's basically just like any Google search engine. But the key difference between Google Scholar and just any old search engine is this button right here. So this is the citation button. And what you end up with is not only the citation formats, which are fine, but these little links down here to BibText, EndNote, RefMan, and RefWorks. Now these are all bibliographer, bibliography managers. Now I use EndNote, so what I typically do is I'll click this link for EndNote, it'll download a little text file, a little import file that I can then use to take into EndNote. And so that's a really valuable tool. It's a really valuable opportunity because I don't have to then input everything into my bibliography uh, manager manually. I can do it in a way that's more automated turn over to our bibliography manager. Now this is a really key piece of software that you can use just to make your life easier and now when you first start using it it might not seem like it's making things easier but trust me once you've gotten into it and you've really set yourself up with a workflow it can save you a massive amount of time whether you're doing like a bachelor or master thesis or whether you're doing full-blown PhD or just using it throughout your academic career. So basically this is the structure It's just a database of all the references and citations that I have used over the years that I have found valuable and that I have referred to in different papers and some of my different work. Um, The databases are more or less the same, although, you know, the user interfaces might differ slightly, but they all function in basically the same way in that it provides one single location for you to have access to all of the references that you're storing, that you're managing, I guess you could say Uh, and so EndNote is just one of these software programs there's uh, RefWorks and Mendeley and Zotero and there's just quite a few some of them are paid EndNote you have to pay for a license some of them are free some of them have online and offline versions that you can access for example through a web browser others are just standalone programs so you really have to kind of see which one's gonna meet your needs the best I like EndNote just because I can modify the inputs and outputs of the database with uh, with a fair with a fair amount of fine tuning. So it really gives me a lot of control over how my references are outputted. Now uh, the file that I download from Google Scholar, all I have to do then is open it in EndNote and it will automatically populate all the fields in the reference. So rather than having to go in here and click new reference and then write everything in manually, the file that you can pull from Google Scholar does everything automatically. And what I've been doing in order to kind of uh, make my life even more easy is uh, going in and grabbing the PDF article of the, uh, of the uh, citation so that I can make sure that now I have um, the reference and the article kind of uh, wrapped up in one. And then I can open this in Adobe Acrobat uh, and then I can make some comments or I can do some highlighting. And I have that reference then for the rest of my life. It's there and I have it and it's ready to go. So I don't have to worry about always trying to find, oh, where did I save that file? Where is that uh, piece of literature located? Um, Now, I don't do that for everything, but certainly the articles that I read, uh, you know, in full, I make sure that I have that as a reference point uh, whenever I'm going back and I'm referring to things. Um, So this database then can just be a central location for all of the works that you're citing. So throughout your career, whether it's a paper in a class or whether it's uh, a paper that you write five years later, you can still have access to those citations and you can still uh, kind of manage the ways in which you're referring to the literature. Now, um, it gets really, really cool once we start loading everything into Microsoft Word. Whenever I take the reference from here into Microsoft Word from my Bibliography Manager to Microsoft Word for EndNote, all I have to do is click this Insert Citation. And in whatever citation I have selected, it will insert the appropriate referencing style for that document. Here I am in my Word document. So if I want to write a really, um, if I'm just writing my paper and I'm writing a sentence, uh, something like, uh, let's do universal design is awesome. And now I want to cite this reference, say it's, uh, you know, Geonumus 2020, right? Um, this is the way you would normally do it. You'd have to manually type everything in. And then when you go down to your reference list, you'd have to go Gia Numis, comma G Anthony 2020 uh, and then the journal and then everything else that goes into the reference list. So this is, I'm gonna show you the, m- easiest possible way here. So you flip back over to the EndNote uh, library, you click the Insert Citation button, and it'll automatically put the reference in the appropriate citation format that you've selected and add it to the end of the document as part of your reference list. So then you have everything kind of laid out really, really, really effectively. Now, EndNote's also great because you can do different formatting styles. So say I wanted to do the same kind of sentence, but I wanted to do a different referencing style. So I'm just gonna copy it here, and then I'm going to pull this out. And instead of saying it like that, I'm gonna say, according to, uh, Bayan et al, Universal design is awesome. So this is another way of citing things in uh, in the text of your document, Uh, but it's the wrong format because it should say buy-in at all parentheses 2020 if we're doing it in APA style. So then I just bounce over here and boom, now I have it correctly. Now, if you'll notice, whenever I copied that sentence out, it didn't repeat the citation. So then if I want to get rid of the citation entirely, I can't just delete it here. I have to delete it here also. So once I've deleted all possible references to that citation, if I update it, then it will get rid of the uh, citation. So if I update citations, boom, it's gone. Now, I want to show you one last really important thing here. So let's put the citation back in again. Now, let's say I'm in APA, but then I submit to a journal that doesn't use APA. I want to use a different citation format. So I just come up here and say they want to do it in uh, Vancouver style. Select it. Boom. It automatically changes it. This is really, really handy because sometimes you'll submit to a journal. They might reject it. You might submit to a different journal after you've reviewed it and and, and uh, revised it and that new journal the second journal might use a different citation format now your life is a whole lot easier because you don't have to go in and reformat everything So uh, I guess top three tips here are, number one, cite all of your sources. Number two, use a bibliography manager. EndNote's my preferred, but you can use whatever you want. Make sure you're importing your citations from something like Google Scholar or from the journal itself so you don't have to manually enter everything. And number three, use a kind of add-on like I have here with EndNote and uh, Microsoft Word or whatever word processing program you use so that when you're citing your works in your document, it makes your life a whole lot easier when it comes to managing your reference list and it comes to formatting your references.